Welcome to Theology.fm. I am your host, Jeremy Myers. If you've been following Theology.fm for a while or my own blog over at RedeeminGod.com, you know that I am one of those people who is a follower of Jesus outside of institutional Christianity. What that means is I focus more on being the church than going to church. I am involved with Christians, meeting regularly to fellowship, discuss scripture, theology, encourage one another, edify one another, all of those sorts of things. But I'm not part of institutionalized forms of doing that, such as sitting in a pew on Sunday morning, singing songs, listening to a sermon, or even in something that you might consider a house church. Uh, It's more organic, relational, day by day, minute by minute, just trying to figure out where Jesus is leading me, what he's inviting me to do, who he is inviting me to spend today with. There's no rules, no regulations, uh, no even responsibilities of what I must do, nothing like that. I know a lot of people, that that sort of living scares them. Uh, They don't know what it's going to look like for them. They don't know how to do it, and that's the beauty of it. It's it's going to be different for every single person. It's going to be different for you as it's different for me. And if you have more questions about that, today's interview, I think, is going to be very helpful for you. Now, this is not an interview that I myself performed. It's an interview on the Nomad podcast. And it's with these two guys who run the Nomad podcast. Their names are Tim Nash and Dave Ward. They live over in the U.K., And they interview Wayne Jacobson, who I have had uh, on the show before with recent some of from his podcast, the God Journey podcast. Anyway, Wayne was over in the UK recently, and he sat down with Tim and Dave to discuss his book, Finding Church, and some of the principles, not principles, some of the ideas anyway, and uh, truths that he was talking about, writing about in that book, Finding Church. So I am going to share that interview with you. Now, I really invite you also to listen to the Nomad podcast. It's a podcast I listen to. And uh, basically the story behind this podcast is that uh, back in 2009, a few friends were eating, drinking, and talking about how they liked Jesus but disliked religion. And they sort of moved into a community together so they could live out the, these ideas in a creative way in their neighborhood. They also began recording some conversations and inviting key Christian leaders into these conversations with them. And along the way, the Nomad podcast was born. Tim and Dave, they travel around and they have these conversations with people like Greg Boyd, Shane Claiborne, Brian McLaren, uh, N.T. Wright, lots of other people that I include in this Theology.fm podcast as well. So... Recently, they were able to sit down with Wayne Jacobson, talk about his book, Finding Church. And if you have sort of been wondering how to follow Jesus outside of the four walls of institutional Christianity, number one, I highly recommend you get Wayne's book, Finding Church. Number two, I recommend that you listen to this podcast, this interview discussion between Wayne and Tim and Dave, as they sort of answer the questions, ask the questions and find answers to the questions that you and I have about this sort of way of living as well. So let's tune in as we listen to Tim and Dave interview Wayne. Making notes already. No, I'm just Tim and Dave. (laughs) (laughs) It's not extensive notes. (laughs) So Wayne, welcome to Nomad Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. 
Perhaps you'd just like to start by introducing yourself to our audience. Uh, gee, what do I say? I, I, I claim to be a brother in the body of Christ who's just gone on a bit of a different journey and got disillusioned with the uh, conventional religious systems that we've inherited. And about 20 years ago, I found myself outside of that. And rather than climbing back in, uh, my wife and I went on a bit of a different journey. Thinking, what is this about? So done a lot of writing, done a lot of talking around the world. I was involved with the little book called The Shack, a co-author of that. I've written a number of other books. Uh, probably my most important book, I think, that was the biggest part of this transition for me is called He Loves Me, Learning to Live in the Father's Affection. For me, the religious environment was fraught with trying to appease God by my good performance. And for me, the change 20 years ago began to happen is began to discover that I was already loved by this Father, and that love began to change the way I related to him and then to other people and then the hope of community became very different. If it's not a managed group of people trying to appease God, then it has the opportunity to be something wonderful. So can you tell us a little bit about your previous experience of church and church leadership? Uh, 20 years uh, I was a vocational pastor, I guess, uh, staff pastor at a growing what we call mega church back home, large staff, large group of people, growing growth curve. Uh, my disillusionment started there. Not that everything external wasn't great, it was, and I had, had a great job and great opportunity, and you know I was kind of ascending the pecking order of things. But it just it didn't it didn't rise to the hope that people who were coming were actually getting to know God and being transformed by Him. We were doing a lot of hoop jumping and hoop making. So uh, then we did. I did 15 years of planting a what we hoped was going to be a relational community, midweek house groups, home groups that were very autonomous, and then had a Sunday morning celebration. But over time, we migrated back to the thing we hoped not to be, just because our crowd on Sunday morning was bigger than anybody doing the house church thing, and uh, the expectations of that group wanted to be a more conventional church with more conventional things. So I ended up right back where I started. And uh, so I found myself outside of that when my best friend, co-pastor, announced my resignation one Sunday morning when I was speaking to another group elsewhere. Wow, that's crazy. It was crazy. He didn't think it was crazy, but yeah, I did. And I had, I mean, I had the power to come back and fix things because I was the founding pastor. So when we did the co-pastoring thing, it was, we're committed, either one of us, not to moving unilaterally, that we'd have to be in agreement to move. Well, he made a big move apart from that. So I had the authority and I had the popularity and I, and I had the, uh, you know, the, the leadership team wanted to move that to a different place. He lied to them and said I had resigned. And so then they announced this resignation and they found out that I hadn't. So a lot of them wanted me to come back in and take over. But by that point, and I was going to because I'm the third of four boys that grew up on a farm. So if you want to have a fight, I'm happy to have <laughs> one. I don't have to win as long as you bloodied up a little. Um, but I felt like what the Holy Spirit put in my heart coming back was, I have more to teach you if you walk away than if you stay. And we didn't have a clue what that meant. I remember when I, that thought first ran through my head, I went, what more do I have to learn? I'm 42. I've been teaching this stuff for 20 years. I know everything I need to know. But we soon found out there was so much that we didn't know that God wanted to show us. And he needed to show us outside that context. So you didn't try to reform the church from within then? I did not. No, we walked away uh, at the end of the day. And... Uh, that's two years of incredible pain. You know, people thought I'd had an affair. The lies that were told about us to discredit us were huge. And uh, we just felt like God kept asking us to live in a different space, not to defend ourselves, not to... So it was a very confused and painful time. But out of it, out of the two years, it came a real beginning of a transformation in our lives. 
So what were there other things that sort of caused you to begin to think that what you thought church perhaps actually wasn't church? I, my passion, even from a very young age, I believed the stuff I learned in Sunday school, that Jesus resurrected on the third day, that he was alive and lived among us. And then I would look at the way we lived and we acted like as if he wasn't. And so we're, we're following his book and we're following his rules, but we're not following him. And that's where I wanted to be engaged. And I, the only tools I knew to advance that were religious tools. So for the first 20 years of my adult life, I'm pushing those religious tools, but they're frustrating. They're not getting there. And uh, I thought, you know, like we're all told, we're just not working hard enough. You need to work them better. And after working them as hard as I could work them, I'm going, no, they don't go where they... Then I come to be convinced of what Paul wrote in Galatians, that road of jumping through hoops and, you know, trying to follow the law or New Testament principles, which in my mind is the same thing. It doesn't go where it promises. It doesn't get there. So going down that road became the frustration point. And the opportunity of getting kicked out of it was the opportunity to say, well, if there's another road, this is the best time for us to find it. Because we're never going to have an opportunity like this where we have nothing other than God and each other, my wife and I, and a few friends who spilled out with us to say, let's go explore what this might really mean. So what was your first experience of, of something different when you, when you really felt like this is church, this is something very different? Well, honestly, I've had those at every stage of my life. I grew up in a Baptist church, and the, the, the institution itself lends itself toward you know, legalism and rule-keeping and those kinds of things. But the friendships that some people had in that context were very rich, very real, and it was always... And, and when I was on staff at the megachurch, same thing. We had close friendships that were everything I thought church was. But we tried to put it in this context, even when we tried to have family fellowship groups, because that, that would answer it. When we made it legal, uh, a legal process out of it, it lost the vitality of it. So I think I've tasted of this all along, but it would be brief taste, as most of us know. You have this season, five, six, eight months, where this fellowship's alive. And, and I don't mean everybody, but the network of friends that's particularly vital and encouraging, and they're stimulating spiritually. And then it get, fades away with all the church work that needs to be done. So I think I've tasted this all along. In college, there was a group of uh, students that really connected and shared a spiritual journey and shared you know, depth of concern and love and care for each other and not competing, but just being open and honest and finding God being more real than us. And so I've had tastes of that. The frustration was how do we institutionalize that without killing it? And that's I mean, my 15 years planting. That was the goal. How do we institutionalize it without killing it? And my conclusion was you can't. So what should be our starting point for our understanding of church? Well, I, my perspective, sick as it is, <laughs> is that we've been for the last maybe maybe 1,800 years too focused on the church and not focused enough on Christ. So everybody's preoccupied with church, whether you go, when you go, what you go to, who you belong, where do you go to church, how big is your church. The, the Christian conversation in the world is way more about church than it is about Jesus, how he makes himself known. I've come to the conclusion, Finding Church, the most recent book, which asks the question, what if there really is something more? Because I, I use the term church in the most endearing way that Scripture does. This is the bride of Christ. This is what Jesus is shaping as a bride for himself. There's nothing more beautiful than the church in the world. But there's a difference between what man calls church and what God calls church. What The church Jesus is building versus the one we've been building. 
And so I use it in the most endearing terms imaginable. This church is God's family in the earth, and we can't build it. He said he would. So our starting point is not, hey, let's, let's get together and build a church. Our starting point is let's learn how to follow him. And how can we encourage other to do that? And then when I know that I'm loved by God and learn to love him back, then I know how to love people around me in a way that means we don't compete. We don't need people to manage us because in honor, preferring one another, we'll care about each other. We'll grow up. You won't have people fighting for the stage, fighting for power, fighting for those things. And so the starting point really for me was learning to live love, learning how loved I was by the Father and what that began to change in Wayne that allowed him to become a safer friend to people in the world and people who knew Christ and then watch those friendships grow into what I would recognize as an expression of his church in the world. So did Jesus give a definition of what church should be? I, I don't know that he gave a definition. He didn't talk about it a lot. He just said, I will build my church. And I think any of us who've been in this journey for a while, you know when you have it and you know when you don't. You know, you might be going to a thing called church but people don't treat each other like you read, you know, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way or they're sharing all things in common and caring for each other. And try as we might to institutionalize those very excellent priorities, then it just becomes something people are trying to do for God and it will wear them out. If it doesn't come from a transformed heart. So Jesus really doesn't give much of a definition. Paul tries to, but Jesus doesn't. He said, look, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And so I don't think he asked us to... I don't think he defined it in a way that we would hope he did. We, we think of it as most people do. You know, it's a, it's a meeting on Saturday or Sunday. It involves worship, which isn't really worship. It's praise and adoration, which is great stuff. But worship is how I live my life under Father's love. And I bring glory and worship to him by the way I treat you, by the way I treat the person I sit by on the train today. And, you know, I think that's what we've missed. It's, it's about how we treat each other. It's not any of the other stuff. So do you think that Jesus told us everything we need to know about church? Because like you said, he didn't say, he almost said nothing about church. He, said, he used it twice, according to Matthew. The other gospel writers don't even use it. Yeah. And yet we made it the most important thing in the world. I, I think he did tell us all he needed us to know, which is, I will build it. If, if we trust that, so we're not trying to, then we're going to see it unfold around us as we learn to live love. He asked us to go make disciples. So my task in the world is to find people who want to know the God I know, help them know him and learn to follow him. And as people around me learn to follow him, the church will emerge as just people care for each other, things God might ask us to do together to task. But it won't be a service and it won't be a ritual. It won't be that. Uh, we may share some of that. I, the group I have back home does not. Um, some other groups do that I know in the world and, and do it well. So it can be a variety of things. But I think by not defining it and not giving us a program, he was telling us all we needed to know about the church. Can you try and unpack that idea a bit more that Jesus is building his church? Because we all say that and I've heard it preached on. Sure. But what does that actually look like? I mean, if you've got a story or an illustration, you know, what does it mean that Jesus is building the church? Uh, I, I think it primarily means for us not to. I, I ask pastor seminars when I get a chance to talk to them. Um, Jesus said he would build his church. He's been doing it for 2000 years. How do you think he's doing and it's fun to watch the conflict in people's minds because even a pastor who feels very good about his church doesn't feel very good about a lot of the other churches in town or the wider thing we call the church in the world. It's a bit of a mess. It's fragmented. It, it's more about knowledge and power than it is about love. When Jesus said that if you'd love one another as I've loved you, the whole world will know you're my disciples. We, we haven't done that 2,000 years for all the meetings and doctrine and polity and things that we have. We haven't, we haven't inspired to that. We, we don't even begin that process. So... 
I, it begins in that place of just learning to live loved and care about the people that God brings into our lives. And the church will emerge. We'll see it. It'll happen among us. And I've seen examples of it all over the world. And I, th- I think most people listening to this are going to say, you know what? I had a moment. I remember back here, we had these four couples, a few singles, our kids, the relationships, the encouragement, the way we cared for each other when somebody had a need. It was amazing. But we lost it to the institutional element where instead of people caring for people because they love them, we have a program that takes food to mothers who just gave birth. Or we have a program that goes visits people that are shut in. And, and we conveyed to program what God wanted people to do just out of their love for each other. And in, in many cases, we don't know each other well enough to even know when someone has a need or how to care for it. But I've seen expressions. It's just, it's, it's. I, I know some people may take offense at the term, but I, and I mean it in the best possible way. It's magic when it appears. It's just amazing when you find yourself spilling into relationships that are that self-sacrificial. When uh, we went through a situation uh, with, a, with a, a bogus lawsuit years ago, two brothers from uh, Ireland called me up uh, that I've gotten to know over, over the years. They called up and said, we want to fly to California and pray with you guys about what you do next, which to me is a beautiful expression of the church. It just is. We had days of praying together, but we didn't institutionalize it like now. These are the people I go to when I have a need. They had it on their heart to come. They came. We sat down with some folks and prayed and talked together till we felt like God gave us wisdom. To me, that's an expression of the church. It can be people serving folks in some ghetto somewhere across the world that are not just a ministry doing a task, but a group of people who are learning to love another group of people and bring resource to bear. So it can look like a lot of different things. I read quite a lot of books and I get through them fairly quickly, but it took me ages to get through the first few pages of your book, Finding that's, Church. Because when you ask that's that how question, boring it is. <laughs> <laughs> when you ask that question, how is Jesus getting on with building his church after two thousand years? I just put the book down and stared out the window for ages, and then you really? kind of go on to say um, either he's not doing it very well, or church might be something different to him than it is to us. And again, that just sent me off for days thinking about that. It's, it's a great thing to think about, because how could we say he's been doing a poor job? And I, I would have said that 20 years ago when I was still pastoring, and I look at the religious landscape of the world. I would have said, you want to be honest about it, he's doing a really poor job. Now in the last 20 years of seeing the church more as this informal network, this growing family in the world that expresses itself in a variety of ways, some of that is within institutions, as I've said, not, not necessarily because of the institution, because of the people and their connection to God and each other. It's outside of it. And when you see that church emerging in the world, uh, there's just all kinds of, I mean, I'm, I couldn't be more hopeful. And I would say now, how's he doing? I'd say he's doing a tremendous job. In spite of all the religion man's trying to mix into it, Jesus is still inviting people to himself, connecting them with each other, and the church of Jesus Christ is flourishing in the world. Do you think it's possible, I mean, you obviously got badly burnt by the institutional church, is it possible that the pendulum's just swinging the other way and you're just saying, I've had enough of all this, and then you're kind of building the theology around church being this very kind of simple, very relational model without any structure or... Yeah, that's the accusation I, I get from people. You've had that before, have you? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, when you've got something to defend, and these religious entities, uh, they affect a lot of people financially, egotistically, there's, there's a lot of investment there, and particularly people who've done it really believing this is what God wants them to do, and they've labored very hard at it. Um, I think the whole idea that there's, the church is something other than that is incredibly threatening. So I, I think when we first got burned by it and we stepped away from it, I, I, I think Sarah and I expected 
in time we would be back in that. It wasn't a decision to leave it forever. It was just, we need some time. And then we began to discover a different way to live it. And so, yeah, I get, I get that other people might say that, but come live inside my life for a couple of years and just see the vitality of the church life that I experienced with people and all over the world. And then you would go, oh my gosh, there is something. What, what if there is something more? That, because that's what's, most of our hearts, people you talk to on this podcast, what's gotten us to where we are, the, the disillusionment at times is, I just knew in my heart, there's got to be something more than this. And not that this is horrible and this is bad and this is ugly, but it just, it gets to a, a ceiling and it, then it just parks itself there. So there's got to be something more. Well, we found a taste of that something more. So, yeah, people want to accuse me of, of being bitter or reactionary. I, I get it. I would have accused me of that 20 years ago. So I, I don't care. But I, I know for us, we, we have, and then the people we meet all over the world hungering for the same thing, find their way into it. Now I know, hey, it's not just our reaction to something. There is something Jesus has here for people. And if you're finding it already in the institution you're in, great. But if you haven't, there's other places to look. I think that's the point. So from what I'm hearing, you're not totally against structures and stuff, but it's, it's kind of how do you bring those structures into something without harming what Jesus is already doing? Yeah, I think structure, just like our skeleton, you know, anytime you're seeing your skeleton, it's not good, right? The skeleton supports the life. I, I think what happens in our institutions oftentimes is this, the structure lives on once the life is gone, and it just becomes a rote for people. So yeah, I don't, I'm not I'm not against structure, but again, with our structures and inside those institutions, the church most people will experience won't be sitting in a service. It's actually going to be the people you know here, and some even pastors say more church goes on as people are coming in and out of the parking lot, as goes on when we're all staring at the front of the building and we're being, you know, there's a performance going on in front of us, whether it's music or uh, someone teaching. And so to me, it's that it's it's putting that in the service is difficult. But when you go for the friendships and go for the people and really learn to love like you're loved, then it'll be it could be transformative in that environment. But we mostly get distracted there. And it's more about jumping through these set of rituals, rules or ethics. And we, we miss that part of helping people know Christ and know how loved they are by God and go on that journey individually. And until they do, then they're just going to be people who are faithful to do what they're told to do. And it will be okay, but it won't be great for the most part. So could church just be a bunch of friends then that are kind of getting on and doing stuff? I mean, and what, what, yeah. what happens when that group of friends starts growing? Well, Jesus called it a family. I like the word family. They will be good friends. I mean, it's a healthy family. So it's people that care about each other, people that God's kind of connected. And I think that connection is fairly fluid. If I'm connected to, I, I can't know well 85 people at home. I can't. I can meet with 850 people if I want to, but I can't know that many. So the people I know and walk in a family relatedness with, where there's genuine affection and delight and willingness to serve, um, that's a relatively small group of people at any given time. I see it as a fairly fluid it says we don't meet every week, so it's not something you get invited to or not. But those relationships can be fairly fluid. I can spend time with these people for a season. And particularly what I, you know, I consider a lot of what I do is helping do the first part of what Jesus asked us to do, which is to disciple, not to build a church. So I'm spending time with people watching them get well and, and get a little grounding in how God makes himself known to them. And then 
those people can walk together and have great friendships. And Sarah and I will bring some other people into our life so we can do that with them. And then we still have church with all those assortments of people. We still have this relationship where if you said, what about the church in Thousand Oaks where we live? We would say, man, it's, it's those people and those people and those people. These we see somewhat regularly. These we don't so much now. But when we get together, the conversation is filled. It's Jesus-centered it's a Jesus-centered family, and the conversation is about Him and what He's doing in us and what we're seeing and what we're struggling with. So what's the test to know if structures are becoming unhelpful? I think when they outlive the life. If, I think one of the first signs is we switch the language from endearment, I want to be here, to obligation, I should be here. That's a good sign. We're leaning more toward the religious element. And people say, yeah, but if we, without, without commitment, things won't happen. In a healthy family... If it's just we're committed to each other, you know, mom says we got to come to dinner on Friday night, so we all do. I mean, it's that, even if you do it, it's not a deal. I hope when my family comes or my kids, my grandkids, I hope it's, I know I'm, I can't wait till they get there. And I hope then, I hope they feel the same way. Just enjoy the day and who else joins us. We have lots of people join our family who aren't really part of our family because we want to show them what a, what a healthy family looks like. So, yeah, I, I think it works that way. Um, in your book, you summarised your position by saying that church should be characterised by unmediated spirituality, unmaintained networks and unmanaged community. Can you just unpack those three things a little bit? Our religious movement is away from Christ as our mediator only to we need a man to do it. So, And I, I qualify that later in the chapter. It's, not, it's unmediated, unmanaged by, by humans but it's mediated by Christ. The community is managed by Christ. When we, when we substitute human management for those things, our connections with each other will we'll taint them. And I think that's the problem. It's not like we have bad intentions, but we're going to try to control our relationships or control our networks. And when we do, it'll get lost a little bit because we'll... These are the people I'm committed to, and you need to be committed to those people. And then we set up flow charts of where whatever flows. And it gets, I think anybody has been part of that. It moves from being something real and affectionate to something that feels artificial and forced. So I, 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 when I recognize in our life, we haven't tried to manage a network of relationships, but we have a network of relationships around us, not just locally, internationally of elders and apostles and prophets and, you know, the, the leadership gifts we think can only function in a system, they function far better outside that system, but they're not managing anymore. They're equipping and connecting, and that's a much more powerful uh, role to take, and I think more of, of what the early church uh, apostles were doing. They were equipping people and they were connecting people, but they weren't starting things that Jerusalem was trying to manage. So are you advocating house simple organic churches? There's a lot of talk about that at the moment, isn't there? A lot of books being written about those things. Is, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? It, it depends. Some of the, the organic stuff is kind of, when you, when you have seven steps to building an organic church, I just find that hilarious. <laughs> because I, once you start following a model, even a good model, you're not following the master anymore. If you get people to follow the master, they will end up in some lovely expressions of church that will be organic, probably more household size. The family functions better in a house. Not many families, you know, get a building, uh, buy a building so they can meet in it once a week and then not eat, but, you know, s sit there and listen to somebody, uh, the grand poobah of the family, preach at them. So it, I think homes are a natural place for that to happen. And I do think it's organic in the sense that Jesus gives rise to it. I think if we skip the part about you are loved by the, you are loved by the God who made heaven and earth. 
You are deeply loved more than anyone else on this planet ever has or ever will love you. He does. Learn to live there and you'll see the family take shape. If you don't learn to live there, so we're just seeking church and trying to find the right set of relationships and the right way of meeting that is thriving, we'll have we'll find that in our own creativity maybe three, four, five months at a time, but then it will fade away. And then the choice is, do we try to keep preserving this and be committed to it, or do we let it go and see what else God wants? But yeah, I think organic household kinds of things are a great way God does that. But a lot of the books and a lot of the materials today, quite frankly, I'm concerned that they're just giving people another system to follow just in their homes instead of in the building at the corner. Do you think there are times where we need a bit more structure and a bit more of a framework? So I'm thinking if, if a group's starting to get involved in community work and social action and stuff, you know, is that a time where we need to get more organized and put some structure in place, do you think? Certainly. If, if, it, if it serves the life of the group, then it's going to be, it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be valuable. I, one of the things I encourage people to think of, because all of us have been part of something that we would say for a season, that was wonderful. And then it got to a point where it's just, we're just doing what we've been doing because it was good and we're trying to find that sweet spot again. I, I like the early church. I think they thought more in terms of tasks rather than creating ministry. So Paul and Barnabas come back from the first missionary journey. We completed the task God gave us to do. So if we, if we form a structure to reach out to a community in our, our, our town or whatever, realize there will probably come a time when that's done. And God will raise up something else. It's not the needs necessarily met, but our involvement with it is done. God can raise up something else, but not to keep things alive past our passion and love for them. So when we're, we find ourselves committed instead of passionate, that's a good sign. Even as a group, it's a, maybe just be individually, I step out. Other people still have the passion. But when we all kind of notice, hey, that passion's kind of... And it can be right in the heyday. And Paul and Barnabas came back. Well, this is the greatest trip. They were telling everybody about it. But they weren't starting the Paul and Barnabas Evangelistic Association and collecting money for the next trip. They weren't. That came as a surprise later when they decided to go out again. And they couldn't even go out together the next time. And had violent disagreement, which is seems to be part of body life too. You know, we have some great stuff. And then we're trying to make it work. And then we end up fighting each other instead of realizing maybe God's doing something different. Maybe you take, take John Mark because you have a passion for him. I'll take Silas and Timothy and we'll go do something different in the world. And respect that Jesus isn't trying to put everything in the same box. What about um, people that, have, that are very new to the faith? Because having a kind of a loose relational network and a very relational view of church, I can see how that would work really well for a mature believer that kind of knows what they're looking for and gets a sense of what God's doing. But someone who's new to the faith, would you see that there's a bit more need for structure, a bit more of a need for a framework there, do you think? If, if we're not going to disciple individually then at least you can get them some information. Maybe they'll have enough to grasp it on. I, I really, I'm a, I got my pilot's license when I was 17. I, I went to ground school and I could learn an awful lot about navigation, weather, load balances on an aircraft. One thing I couldn't do is learn to fly a plane. You can only learn to fly a plane when somebody gets in next to you. I, I think what I get from the Gospels is Jesus conveyed the life of the kingdom from person to person. You who understand it, pass it on to someone who doesn't, so they can pass it on to someone who doesn't. And I think when we try to go against that, so we're using structures for growth, we're actually raising kids in orphanages rather than raising kids in families, which is come live with me. Come be part of my family for a while. Come visit when stuff's going on. Just watch what we do as we learn to follow Christ. You'll learn to follow him too. And so, yeah, more structure if they're not getting family, but I, I hope we give them family instead. I know a lot of people who are part of a traditional church and, and it's not really working for them, but they say they're hanging in there because they want their kids 
to go through the activities and to go through Sunday school. Do you think children need activities in a more of a structured sense? Uh, some maybe do. Some find it helpful. I, I don't think there's a standard thing everybody should do. I think when you're raising kids and you're part of a community, if you have friendships there, maybe the maybe there's a lot of the political end of this group that turns you off, but your kids enjoy being with those kids and you enjoy being with those people. And you can kind of get away from being behind the curtain so you're not seeing all the levers that are pulled and you're not getting frustrated and ticked off every Sunday. Can you just go and enjoy people and enjoy that environment? Yeah, you can. Can it be effective for the kids? Yeah. Do they need it? I think kids much prefer family. I, I think what really helps kids get a journey is they have caring relationships with non-parent adults. That really the trend is more toward intergenerational relationships, even not just young marrieds being together, but young marrieds with older marrieds and singles integrated into a family is a better way for those relationships and connections to happen. But if people feel like, yeah, going to that school or that church or is helpful to my kids, great. I think for the most part, many people on this journey feel like, as my friend in Australia says, sometimes Sunday school j gives our children just enough of God's things to inoculate them against the reality of knowing Him. And I think that's the danger parents need to be aware of. Is, is my child getting a morality message every Sunday? If you do good, God will love you. And if you do bad, God will punish you. Is that valuable to that kid's growth? I would say it isn't. Unfortunately, most kids aren't listening anyway. They're just going to play with their friends. So, you know, it may not be that harmful. But I think much Sunday school curriculum is just simply another morality thing to give the parents power over a child instead of really acquainting them with how Jesus makes himself known to them. Just uh, coming back to what, the New Testament says about church clearly Jesus didn't say much but Paul says quite a bit doesn't he and, and yes. the church he describes that there, there certainly seemed to be a pattern didn't they? they they met they did meet regularly there were certain activities that Paul encouraged and there did seem to be some kind of leadership structure isn't that the kind of thing that you're saying doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily helpful well I, I think families or people that are we will gather regularly it may not be a meeting on the first day of the week and it's certainly what paul's talking about is not having a worship service and a lecture from somebody i mean to, to take those definitions of the church and then apply it to what we call church day is absurd those were household gatherings it was people coming together we don't even know if they opened in prayer closed in prayer had prayer requests they loved and cared about each other and around that things got shared people got cared for they served the lord's table to us lord's supper together i mean they did those things and in any community of people you go to the group i I know in Dublin or people in different places in America or Australia, any kind of relational community like this, you'll know who the elders are. They're, they're not managing the system. They're brothers and sisters who are down the road a bit, who are turning around caring for people. So I think all those gifts function better when they're not spending all their time in committee meetings deciding what color the carpet should be or who can be on the worship team. But they're actually helping people get to know who Jesus is and connecting people in ways that friendships grow. So I think all those structures are incredibly valuable, but a family way of dealing with those things is very different than a business way of dealing with those things. And we've kind of uncritically grabbed the business models to say we can do it this way, which is more evidence of our human effort than it is letting Jesus build the church and the unmanaged networks and those things we talked about earlier. So you're talking about kind of servant leadership yeah. style. Yeah. Primarily a leader is an equipper and he's a connector or she. It's not, I'm a manager. I'm putting a group together and I need to get paid and I need to tell people what to do. I need to plan meetings and potlucks and all that stuff. No, I, people, people get together well. When they're, when they're genuine friends of each other, they'll be together a lot. You don't have to tell friends, you guys should be together once a week. Really? 
And then when you say you should, it kind of ruins what friendship is. I, I'll be with you when I want to be with you. And you want to be with me when our hearts are excited about getting together. And then wonderful things happen. Uh, we've all been part of even good friends getting together because it's Thursday night. And we agreed we'd meet on every Thursday night. And everybody there is tired and bored and no one prepared anything. And they just stare at each other. And so why are we here? If God didn't call us together tonight, just, is, is it really? Do we need a weekly meeting I don't think we know that every church did that. We know the church at Corinth did it. They met on the first day of the week. And then we go, okay, that's the model everybody should do. And I, I, I don't do that. When Paul appoints elders, ask Timothy and Titus to, in the pastorals, appoint elders. Timothy's doing that in Ephesus. When John writes to Ephesus later, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the elders are now the problem. So he's not saying appoint elders. He's saying you have an anointing from the Holy One to know truth and error. I think what the apostles did is they saw the church as a certain reality. If elders could help that happen and identifying them within a community, great. If the elders become the problem, then it's still the reality of the church is what you're looking for, not a structure that guarantees that it'll happen just because the structure functions. So it wasn't a case of people being put into those places. It was a case of people being recognized for those gifts and therefore people would see them as their leader. Or Is that what you're saying? I think so. I think what's going on in Ephesus is what Paul prophesied would happen in Acts 19 is there was great confusion. Who's really an elder and who isn't? A lot of people are claiming to be that aren't. And so he tells Timothy, go point out the real ones. The guys that live the life, have the sound doctrine, it's demonstrated in their families. Go point those people so that young converts, oh, there's one. Uh, no, that's not one so much. because the, the more mature believers are going to know. You're going to know who the elders are and who they're not. But newer ones may not. So just pointing them out. And then Diotrephes in Ephesus, he becomes, he's the senior pastor. He becomes the problem. And John said, look, let me deal with him when I come. But you guys, you have an anointing. Because he said the spirit of the Antichrist is already among you. And I think what he means is not, we get that confused with the Revelation Antichrist, which is the real anti-Christ figure in the world. I think Antichrist, in the way John's using it, it's somebody willing to be a Christ substitute for you. It's the Antichrist in that sense, that this is, someone's going to set the, themselves up to be your mediator, to be your direction from God, and instead of equipping you to follow him, they'll tell you what you should do to follow him. That applies to a lot of church leaders, doesn't it? It does describe it, and I think that's why people who go end up frustrated, because if you don't submit to everything they're saying and try and just grow, you're going to be called unsubmitted and you're going to be marginalized. But if you follow a man or a woman instead of following Christ, that's why I think leaders equip people to follow. Once I let you be the one I follow, then I'm not following Christ anymore, and it'll, it'll get in the weeds. So when we see those descriptions in Corinthians and other places of church, you're saying that it, rather than being a prescription of what we should do, it is purely a description of what they were doing to make their understanding of church fruitful yeah. but it's not necessarily what so that's a particular way of reading the bible isn't it? it is it is seeing the new testament as a story an unfolding story of a group of people who've caught a new kingdom and how are we going to live this out together and, and it's a lot of struggle a lot of mistakes the early church wasn't perfect by any stretch it's, it's a lot, but i see it as a story not a rule book and we've made a rule book. So I can quote this, Paul appointed elders, therefore we all have to have elders appointed. And we forget that First John says that didn't work out so well very long. It was good at a start. That can be helpful if the elders are truly elders. But when people get appointed to elders that aren't truly elders, then they, they take control because that's what they do. Our human insecurities will cause us to take control if we don't trust Jesus to manage his body. And if you've got buildings and money and resources to manage, then even more importantly, do you have to have people who have control of things? If you keep it decentralized, then you don't have to have that management in place.
So another, another example that occurs to me where a bit of structure is put in place is in Acts, isn't it? Where there's a group of people that aren't getting the food that they need. There's a bit of a... Was it the Hebrew women weren't... No, the Hebrew women were, the Greek widows were not. Right, so they yeah. appointed some people to oversee that and sort that out. So again, you'd say that's not necessarily a prescription, that here's how you go about organizing yourself to sort out a problem in the community. That's just what they felt they needed to do. At the that's time. what they did. And I think when you read the story in Acts, what Luke is trying to say to us, that didn't work well for them. When they started, there was a, in Acts 2, they're just sharing with each other as they have need. By Acts 4, the disciples are collecting it to distribute it. And now you've got Ananias and Sapphira using that as an occasion for them to buy spiritual status through deception. So there's a problem there. Now the disciples are overtaxed with it. So they say, well, we'll appoint a group of people to do it for us. Well, we're going to give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer, which is basically we're too good to serve, which Jesus told you the greatest among you will be the servant of all. I think Luke is showing us this goes awry. Because in the next few chapters, it's Philip and Stephen who take center stage. They're supposed to be the guys passing out the money, and they're in fact the people who are having the most impact in the culture, so much that when Philip starts this revival in Samaria breaks out, when Philip is there, John and Peter have to go down, they haven't got anything else to do. They've kind of been in their closets doing the word and prayer. They forgot to serve. When At the feeding of the 5,000, what are the disciples doing? They're waiting tables, and they're being the janitors at the end of the thing. That's what Jesus wanted us to do. That's what leadership is. It's serving. And, when you were, and I think Luke is showing us, when they removed themselves from service and put other people there, those became the significant people for the next few chapters until Stephen is killed, and I think John and Peter kind of figure it out. That's so interesting. I'm yeah, I know. It's really counterintuitive. Yeah, most people is. are going to go, okay, now you're into heresy, and I'm, I might well be. But I think if we, if, again, you're reading this story, not a rule book. You're going to say, well, the problems really started when they started collecting money. Money always, money centralized always creates the potential for corruption. I don't care if it's political, religious, whatever. And we see that in human history all along. When they kept it decentralized, and you see after even after the council at Jerusalem, of all the things you think would happen in, in, in Acts 15, they're getting together to decide the circumcision issue. This would be the time to launch a superintending institution that would manage and oversee, but they didn't. And they asked for the most minimal of things. They've decided circumcision is necessary. We're going to ask you to abstain from sexual immorality, to not eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and remember the poor. What church council do you know would come up with that light of a load? And even later, Paul's saying, you know what, the meat, that's not anything. You can eat the meat that's offered to idols if your conscience is clear, because that's not a deal. So he throws out one of the three. And I, I think, but what, what's surprising to me is here you've got these men in Jerusalem who now could become the central organizing denomination, and they refuse it. That's a powerful example. So I'm still detoxing myself from that view of the sure. Bible, where everything that's there has got sort of God's stamp of approval on it. But I've never, that story of appointing those people to oversee the food distribution, I hadn't sort of detoxed myself. And that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's, I mean, he's given us a story. He's not telling us what they're doing is right. He shows Paul and Barnabas in this violent disagreement. He's not saying we should do that. That's just what happened. He's telling us what happened. We want, because we take the Bible legally. We, so even, we wouldn't quote scriptures like you do legal interpretations, you know, paragraph and number of sentence. And, you know, this proves we should do this. This proves, and I, I look at things that we prove by proof texting and go, isn't true. You, you couldn't get there if you read the whole story. You can get there if you pull out that one little thing. You can pretext text anything, can't you? Anything, absolutely. I used to. I, I know it well. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So Wayne, when you go around talking about this sort of stuff, what are the main kind of objections that you get to it? I mostly don't get objections when I travel around because most, mostly most people, people come. Yeah, I travel. You know, I don't. I don't travel publicly, um, in the sense that you, you'd have to be on my website. You'd have to be paying attention to know I'm, I'm somewhere. So I don't go somewhere as a public figure and draw the people who want to protest like Donald Trump does back home. <laughs> um, so I don't have a lot of that when I'm there. I have people who are struggling with just what you said. You know, what about this institution? Is It's been existing. Isn't this the church? It's it's that definition of church that we have directed at an institution. There's an old Swiss theologian that, you know, on, on the year I was born, 1953, says the church is a community of persons and nothing else. That's just a powerful view of, but we've made it not a community of persons. It's an institution that applies a certain doctrine or ritual, imposes it on someone's life. And then we always say, wow, I can't believe it doesn't lead people to maturity in Christ. It's not, it's not meant to, it's not designed to. So, you know, I get the emails, though, from people that are angry because they, you know, I wrote a book called So You Don't Want Church Anymore, and the parents blame me for alienating their children, and some children write me and blame me for alienating their parents. My parents are no longer going to the church they raised us in. It's your fault. And the book doesn't say leave. I'm not telling people how to leave anything. What I want people to do is if you've got a hunger to know the living God, pursue that hunger. Just let Jesus show you how and follow it wherever it takes you. And if it's outside the conventional norms, realize most of those norms are humanly imposed. They're not Jesus-imposed. But don't go try to have a journey by, I'm going to reject church and sit in my house and I'm going to, you know, you can, you can react to these things and miss the same journey. So I'm, I'm not interested in that. I really want to help people get it. Because Sarah and I, we've been living like this for 20 years and Man, I just, it's, it's the best. It, it satisfies the hunger people have that they're missing by doing all the religious things they feel like they have to do. And what do you think are the main challenges of this kind of intensely relational approach? When you find out where your hunger really is. I mean, you can, if, if my spiritual hunger is I go to a service once a week and I punch my ticket and I have fellowship because I went to the building and they have a fellowship night and I went to the potluck and that's fellowship then they may not even know what real fellowship is. But when you don't go there to get it, now you have to initiate that. You have to let God put something on your heart. You have to call somebody up and invite them over. It puts the initiative, even giving. You know, if I'm not going to a thing that requires a tithe or an offering, now how do I live generously in the world? How does God's love, and where, where do I put that money or time or effort or energy? And it changes everything from being a passive follower of someone else's program to being an active alongside God, letting him initiate what he wants to do through you and in you. And so you, even for fellowship, forgiving for whatever, you, you become someone that's got to listen and follow. And I think a lot of people don't want to do that. It's just much easier if you'll just, I get that email too, when just tell me what I should do and I'll do it. <laughs> uh, and rob you from the best thing in the world. And it may take you a year, two, three or four to even get your bearings learning what it is to follow Jesus. So people say, well, I don't know how to do it, good. Come learn. Just take your time. Let him just ask God every day, God, would you show me how it is that you're revealing your love in my life today and what it is that you're giving me to be part of today? And follow those nudges that are in your heart and follow the circumstances that open doors in various ways. It seems to me that this is very relevant for our sort of spiritual but not religious culture and a culture who's rejecting institutions generally. Have you seen evidence that this is... This is really kind of ripe for our, our culture. I do, and I think it's... Uh, unfortunately, most of the best reforms in, I think, God's love for our cultures 
have not come through our religious institutions. I mean, the whole one, one man, one vote rule, the whole idea of democracy and republic, that didn't come from the church. Church resisted it. The church is where royalty still exists. Um, women's rights. I mean, you look at the way Jesus treated women, and if we'd have gotten that, the church wouldn't have been advancing the equality of women and loving and caring for them and letting them be part. But we weren't. The world drove that. And I think now the disillusionment with institutions, is that being parabled in the world first? Unfortunately, it is. But that's because we're not listening and we're not following. And I think so God loves our culture enough that if the church won't do it, I'll do it through people who maybe for very selfish reasons are fighting for women's rights. But you know what? If, if a man's been dominating women and women are saying, we have the right to be as selfish as you men have been for 6,000 years, how are you going to deny him that? But does it bring us to a better point? Well, hey, you know what? Jesus didn't treat women the way we've been treating women. And male and female don't exist in the body of Christ. We're all his people, his children, sons and daughters. Yeah, it does force us to change. And unfortunately, the world sometimes yields in those ways. I mean, the church is still, and I mean church with quotes, air quotes around it, what men calls church. Church is still absolutely empty in France because they sided with the king and lost. And so people have no love for that. They weren't on the side of, you know what, every person is loved by God. And God wants to make himself known through them. When Martin Luther came back from his altercation with the Pope, he was talking about the priesthood of all believers, right? But the Lutheran church didn't go that way. And one Lutheran theologian told me the reason they didn't is because the king of Germany could tell that priesthood of all believers thing will actually end his rule. Oh, if there's no divine right of rule, if some of us aren't better than the rest of us, then he didn't want Martin Luther teaching and told him he wouldn't protect him from the Pope if he kept teaching it. So we lost it. So what would you say to someone who perhaps has committed years to the institution of church, they've tried to reform it and they're feeling burnt out and disillusioned, what, what would be your advice to them? I, I, I'd say, you know, follow, follow Christ. There's not an easy answer to what should be done next. But if you keep crashing your head against the wall, at some point, stop. Stop crashing your head against the wall. What would it mean to step back and say, okay, this is not working. I've given myself. To, I think more problematic are the people who've given themselves to it. They derive some benefit from it, whether it's financial or whatever. And it's pretty good. They can get by, but there's a lot of frustration because it's just never... I mean, when I was on staff, I blamed senior leadership why this, the place wasn't good. And then when I was senior leadership, you blame the people because they won't do enough. And so there's, there's a lot of that frustration that's there. So I, I take the frustration into a conversation with God and say, God, what's next for me? Is there a way to really reform this? And are there people here that will be part of us reformatting this? That may be the answer. It may be to step away and find a different, that may be the answer. And I don't have a preconceived, everybody ought to do this or that, other than the invitation to the kingdom was to come follow me. And so learn what that means. And not, don't just try to make the institution work or not work. Find out what he's asking you to do in the world. And it's just be the slightest next step. It's not going to be a 10-year plan or here's the way it all works. But just who is he asking me to love tomorrow? What does that love lead me to do? If I lean away from things that are artificial and things that are more real, what will that lead me to do? And find your way and a journey with him that will, will provide all that answers the deepest cries of your heart. It's hard though, isn't it, when you've been in that sort of church situation, you're trying to find others that are feeling the same way that you can then go and do what you're doing. That's, yeah. that's probably the hardest thing, isn't it? It is, it is very hard. And with our religious construct, it's, it's always about right or wrong. So when people feel disillusion, 
their first response is, I'm going to attack that, and I'm going to tell my friends how wrong that is, when they don't even know what right is yet. They don't even know how to walk, and so they're part of disaffecting. So that's part of the, the other side of that same thing you're talking about. Yeah, it is a problem. And until we settle into, okay, what's Jesus asking me to do? And that's hard, because most people, when they start seeing you know, the, the, the man behind the levers, behind the curtain, running the wizard, and then they're angry, and they want to lash out, and they want to be, I'm more right than you. And there's a lot of disaffected Christians who are on that page, who are just screaming at the church, it's Babylon, and you know, we've got to tear it down, and I, I'm not there. I don't, I just, how, how does that help anybody? Find out who God is and how he wants to work in you. Then you'll know how to love people around you. It won't be to convince them that you're right. It's just how do you love people? And then you'll, you'll meet people who, who are really having the same questions and same thoughts you are. And that will be wonderfully energizing to have these conversations with people who aren't just angry and reactive, but are actually exploring a different way to live out this journey. That's what I hope Finding Church does. It gives people a different way to live this. Yeah, A lot of those people are actually outside the church already, aren't they? That, that you yeah. could have those conversations with and probably develop some. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the research on the Duns back home in America, but they're actually saying now, 64 million people out of 210 million uh, have left quote-unquote church in the last uh, so many years used to be active no longer active didn't set a year on that um, of those 34 million just kind of walked away from Christ when they walked away from the institution so there's a lot of that but 31 million still profess to be a passionate follower of Jesus Christ just no longer doing it through the conventional congregation that's one-seventh of the US population the adult population so are there a lot of people out there like this? There are. We just don't know them because the only friends we have are religious friends. And when you leave that, then your, your family often hates you. Your friends don't trust you. You're now a black sheep because you can't be trusted. You're not under authority. So it's a, it's a difficult road in this day and age. But then you start meeting other people who have that same passion. And you go, wow, I had no idea there were so many. That's why when we got kicked out, our thought was we'll be back in someday. And then I started meeting so many people that were outside of it. And I would have said before, hey, you can't live out. You just wither up and die because I didn't know anybody outside of it that was thriving. Now I know thousands of people all over the world who are thriving. So I know it's not essential. It can be valuable. It's just not essential. Great. Thank you so much for that. That's just been great and lots to think about. And I'm sure... My pleasure, listeners... guys. Thanks for having me join you today. Thank you. So that was Wayne. I loved that interview. It was great, wasn't it? Yeah, really good. Very interesting. Lots to think about. Yeah, that one's going to... Yeah, I've got a lot to unpack there. I'm going to need a lot of soaking, soaking in the bath, I think, to, to work through all that. Is that how you unpack stuff? Um, yeah, I do generally. Thoughts do seem to sort of organise themselves when I'm soaking in the bath. Yeah, yeah, I rarely have baths i generally have showers and i must admit i tend to have thoughts when i'm having a shower so there yeah. must be water related well no there is it's something that is about something about floating in in warm water does do something that triggers creativity really yeah i read about it once yeah. if you just look online about generating creativity people come up with a list of things it's all about when you're relaxed and doing something mundane and not actively thinking about solving a problem that mm. ideas just kind of come to you. So every office should have a jacuzzi, shouldn't it? Really? Uh, yeah, well, Google have all kinds of different things, don't yeah, they, to yeah. sort of generate. Anyway, um, I, I just thought, what a cracking question that he asked. And I mentioned this in the interview, in his book, when he said that Jesus said that he would build the church and yeah. not even hell would prevent him. He's been doing it for 2,000 years, so how do you think he's getting on? Yeah, it's a good question. It's it? a very good question, isn't it? 
Well, that's science. <laughs> <laughs> we could just sit and think about that. Couldn't we? <laughs> oh. Well, like you said, you had to sit in silence when you first read that I did, in yeah. the book, didn't you? Just to yeah. kind of concentrate. Because you either got to admit he's not doing a very good job, or church is something different yeah. to him than it is to us. Perhaps we ought to just stop now, let everybody think about that. For well, a they bit, can just press pause. And then come they? back to it. We don't have to literally stop and walk away, they yeah. can just press pause. So just, let's suggest that. Press that pause. We're back. Um, I, I feel like my thinking about church and, and the way I go about church has been sort of moving in that direction, definitely, in a sort of a, a Wayne Jacobsonian direction. Mm. Um, but he j has just sort of pushed it all the way, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think one of the things that stood out to me straight away was that whole question of are we talking about house type church organic church and stuff like that with what he was talking about but he was even stripping those things down and i thought it was interesting when he said that there are books about starting organic churches then mm. yeah you know, surely an organic church is organic and how can you read the instructions on it so 10 steps for starting your organic church yeah sort of quite ironic title isn't it yeah uh, it reminded me a bit of the Karl Madeiras interview. Don't you remember that? Yeah. That was a few years ago now, wasn't it? That it was sort of radically Jesus-centred, that he just strips away all the kind of nonsense that's built up over the centuries, over the millennia, and just gets back to to what Jesus said, and yeah. to following him. Um, but I And I, I've sort of attempted to do that in my understanding of the Bible, but I've not been so kind of thoroughgoing in doing that in terms of my understanding and the way I go about doing church. And I think that's the way he's challenged me, I think. Because, like we said in the interview, Jesus didn't seem hugely concerned about the church, did he? No. And, uh, and yet we seem incredibly... Massively concerned. Concerned about it. Yeah, so much, that, yeah, so much of Christians, and I include myself in that, time and energy and thought and money goes into building church yeah it? that's right yeah. and yet jesus said leave that up to me it was yeah. quite clear wasn't it yeah 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 and because i guess the way that we church is done generally is is about well it seems to me anyway about control and um, hierarchy and 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 having a, the most amount of people that you can and it's so about growing your congregation so um yeah i think i'd add to that probably with the best of intentions but yeah. that that is the end result isn't it that yeah. once you start counting and monitoring and, and putting programs in place that is with the best of intentions that is control isn't it yeah absolutely. and it can easily be abused yeah and then which then also brings insecurity or or maybe shows our in, i guess it shows our insecurity doesn't it that that we want to see to be seen as successful and that success is about numbers of people that we've got coming to our church. Yeah. Well, it's, it's easily, it's so, yeah, I can understand it. It's not necessarily healthy, but whenever I mention our little community people, that's always the first question. Yeah. Well, how many people go? I know, yeah. People want to picture it, don't they? So. Yeah. It'd be interesting if Jesus was doing what he did back then. He would actually be seen as pretty unsuccessful, wouldn't he, really? He just had these 12 guys that went around with him didn't grow any bigger than that yeah i mean he attracted big crowds didn't he with his yeah his stories and stuff but they just dispersed and he was only ever left with a handful of people wasn't yeah. he? yeah um yeah and i can totally relate to what wayne was saying about his past experiences as well that he'd had 
experiences of what he now understands as church, those kind of connections, those interactions, mm -hmm. those special evenings with people. And, I, and I, as I kind of look back over my faith journey, I can see that, that those kind of highlights are those moments yeah. where a little group spontaneously forms, you, you know, you go away together, or you do a project together, or you meet up for a season and you're just sharing, you're eating, you're praying, and you just think, wow, this is amazing. And, but then I always felt like, but I also need to go to, in inverted commas, church. And, I, and, I, and that never fitted very well for me. And I always found it quite a draining experience. But I felt that, well, that is proper church. So I need to commit to it. But he's just saying, no, just go with the flow. Go with that kind of natural relational stuff that was happening anyway. That's, that is Jesus growing his church. Yeah, that's very releasing, isn't it? And actually, I, I mean, one, one couple who were particularly instrumental in sort of leading me to faith, that... That was my experience. They regularly had me over for meals, once a week, sometimes twice a week, and we'd just eat and we'd talk and they would pray, and that's what kind of brought me into the faith. And then I thought, right, okay, you've come to faith now, you need to go to proper church. And it was just so jarring. It was just like, oh, I don't know. this doesn't feel right. This yeah. feels unnatural, it feels forced. Whereas what led me into the faith was a very natural, organic sort of relationship. And that happens so often, doesn't it? And even today with the whole fresh expressions thing, people still talk about the fact that, well, when are they, when are you going to start getting them into proper church? Yeah. Oh yeah, I get that. Yeah. 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 Um, but my sort of, um, I suppose my disillusionment with traditional church grew when I got a job. So I spent five years working for a local church and I was actually employed to connect with people that were on the fringes or not connected at all with church. And in my f my first month, I can remember this because I made a note of it. <laughs> in my first month, I was required to go to 34 meetings. No. Yeah. Most of which were in the evening. Oh, my goodness. So when, when people were around and doing stuff, I was never available to connect with anyone because I was in these meetings. That's ridiculous. Yeah, the minister at the time just loved meetings. Just meetings for everything, committees for everything. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I can't remember if... I think maybe Wayne said this in his book, but he said if the kingdom of God came through meetings, it would have been here a long time ago. <laughs> Wouldn't it? The amount of meetings we have yeah. about stuff. Yeah. Often And often the meetings we have were about strategies to connect with people. Yeah. And I just think, well, people are doing that naturally. People are doing that in their families and with their neighbours and at work. The reason they're not doing it is because we're pulling them out of those contexts and sticking them in meetings to talk about strategies for connecting with yeah, people. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> oh dear. Crazy world. Yeah. I guess the thing with all this is because it's so loose is the whole thing of it, it then becomes a responsibility for each individual to be proactive. Oh, it's a massive things. responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that is the big challenge. Yeah. Definitely. And so it's how do you do that, isn't it? And yeah. How is it, and I guess if... I don't know, if, if, if people were being discipled from the start in that sort of way, then maybe that would happen. Yeah. But it's kind of undoing all the stuff that, if, if you've been involved in church and stuff like that, you've, it's undoing all that and recognising, oh, actually, I can do this. And I, I think the longer you've been in traditional church, the harder it would be then to take responsibility yourself, yeah. wouldn't it? Because you, for so many years, you'd have been fairly passive, just receiving teaching, being led in worship from the front, you know, saying amen to the prayers, yeah. giving your money so that your money is then distributed by the church, mission being set up for you, 
to suddenly go from that to have to take responsibility for all that. So I, I can remember when um, our little community started to form and and me and Hannah had to take more responsibility. Like one of the big things for us is what do we do with our money? Yeah. Because you're so used to just handing it over to the church and yeah, they decide true. what to do with it. But suddenly when you're not doing that anymore and, and you're responsible to, to working out what the needs are and who it's best to give money to, that's a very time-consuming thing, isn't it? It requires a lot of thought and prayer. and That's just one thing, isn't it? Yeah, it know, How do I feed myself? How do I engage with the Bible if yeah. it's not just through listening to sermons? You know, It is a huge responsibility, and I think that's the thing that would trip a lot of people up, I, I would imagine. Yeah. I remember um, way back, uh, before your nomadic uh, journey commenced, uh, I had the privilege of interviewing Rowan Williams. Yeah. Oh, precious Rowan. And um, he, uh, in the interview, I asked him what he thought church was, and he said, church is what happens when people encounter the risen Jesus. He did. Yeah, and I, but I think I tentatively followed up by saying, yeah, but, you know, Church of England's grown a little bit more complicated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, there's just one or two structures built up <laughs> around that, and, uh, you know, it's turned into, a, I don't know, a bit of an organisation, hasn't it? You know? <laughs> but that's the heart of it, I think, isn't it? And, and Jesus said that, didn't he? He said, when two or three are gathered... I'm yeah, I'm in the midst. Yeah. I'm sure that is church, isn't it? And that's often said in in, a, in a, as an apology, isn't it? Yeah. You know, when not many people turn up to a meeting or something. Well, you know, Jesus does say when two or three are gathered. But I think he's saying no. That actually is the built. That is church. That is what I want. That is the building block. Yeah, and and those two or three people gathered. In in my opinion, either don't necessarily have to be what you would call Christian either. I think uh, the the times that I feel like that experience of church is when I'm having a great conversation with people whether they're Christians or not and you just feel like something's happened within this conversation like something's moved on or yeah or some yeah and I and actually I read something somewhere I don't know what it was actually but it just popped into my head was about things that bring life so I think that anything that brings life has got to be church because well Jesus said I'm the way the truth and life didn't he so so if you're bringing life into a situation that has got to be um, church and Jesus talks about kingdom come as well doesn't he and so again I just think that's about it's about bringing God's kingdom into that moment so that's church yeah I thought it was um, really interesting his answer to when we were sort of pushing him a bit on when so he was saying structures aren't necessarily a bad thing they're only but they're only good if they enhance those relationships yeah but then well how do you know when those structures are starting to become unhelpful and one thing he said which i'd i've been pondering for a while is the idea that the that church you know we say church is a family and so it's quite helpful to think well when you're thinking is this activity or whatever becoming unhelpful think well is this what families do yeah, and that's quite a simple way, isn't it, of just yeah, keeping definitely. it keeping it relational, yeah, absolutely. keeping it family like. And I think I think we're pretty good at at doing that in our little community in the sense that we we have made a commitment to meet together weekly. But I think that is a family like thing, isn't it, to kind of say right on a Friday night we're all going to eat together. Yeah, know? I mean within our family, I suppose we have set meal times each day, but it's. Just, I don't want to eat with our group every uh, meal. No. No, that's too much water. You push that too far. It would, it, apart from anything else, we'd end up hating each other. Getting across the town as well. So. There's that. Yeah. 
Yeah. But yeah, we eat together, sort of families do. Mm. We talk together, we debate stuff, we pray, we've been on holiday together, we do days away together in the summer, we meet down the park. Do you know what I mean? All that yeah. stuff's all family stuff, yeah. isn't it? And I think that's quite a quite an easy way of just keeping a check on on what we're doing. Yeah. I really like that idea of the skeleton as well. That was a good one, mate. It was. I really like that. He said the skeleton sort of supports the life of the body, but you really don't want to see the skeleton. <laughs> Whenever you can see the skeleton, something's gone wrong. Yeah. And um, if you start to see the structures, if the structures become obvious, then that's another sort of clue that things aren't as they should be. Yeah, very good. <sighs> so much stuff went I could go on now. I feel this reflection is coming to a, a, a natural conclusion. Yeah, otherwise... But I could, I could go on about how he was interpreting the New Testament as well. I, th I thought you might have brought oh. that up, actually, in your reflection, because you, cert you certainly uh, uh, pounced on it at the time. And made the way he really interpreted that stuff in Acts, I just thought, wow. Yeah. I've got a lot of rethinking to do. Well, that's for somebody who goes to theological college, or university, or whatever it is that you yeah. went to. So, or just anyone that's interested in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, let's not let's not pass it off to the academics. Water. <laughs> I think I'd kind of. But that is the trouble, isn't it? That is, is how we've been taught to read the Bible in this sort of academic yeah, kind of way. Just leave it to Tom Wright to sort out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just wait till yeah. Tom writes about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I thought yeah. I'd sort of detox myself from that sort of prescriptive view of the Old Testament, but I, I hadn't really so much with the New Testament. I was still reading that in quite a legalistic way, but but he was saying, no, no, think about it. Just because it's describing something that, just because it's describing they appointed these men to oversee the food distribution doesn't necessarily mean it was a good thing. And actually, if you read the story, there's some clues that it was quite unhelpful. Yeah, yeah. Nice one. My head almost exploded with an overload of interest there. I love stuff like that. Absolutely yeah, I know you it. do. I know. Yeah. Don't you love it? I love it. Well, yeah, I do, but probably not as much as you. <laughs> Absolutely love it. I, know. I could tell. I could tell at the middle of the interview. I thought Tim is loving this. <laughs> I love being wrong about stuff. It's so good, isn't it? Being wrong about stuff because then it just opens up a whole new. It's like a doorway to a whole new realm, isn't it? To explore. Yeah. I don't understand why people defend their positions. Just <laughs> allow yourself to be wrong and learn something. So that was our discussion, an interview between Tim and Dave as they interviewed Wayne Jacobson about his book, Finding Church, and also as they asked some very interesting questions about what it looks like to follow Jesus outside of institutional Christianity. I loved their discussion of Acts. And of course, I know Tim and Dave loved that too, as you heard their comments there sort of at the end as they talked about uh, some follow-up ideas from what Wayne had said. So I hope you consider what Wayne has said, what they discussed in this podcast interview, Hope you found it helpful and encouraging. Also, hope you take the chance to go over and go to Amazon, buy a copy of Wayne's book, Finding Church. There's links in the show notes to this episode of Theology.fm. You can go to Theology.fm slash Wayne Jacobson slash 22. And you can find links to there to the Nomad podcast as well. So you can subscribe to their podcast on iTunes. While you're there, you can also click so that you can go over and leave a rating and review of the Theology.fm podcast on iTunes. That's a great encouragement to me to keep up sending out these uh, insights, sermons, ideas, podcasts, interviews that I, I, I record and I send out to you on Theology.fm. So anyway, go to Theology.fm slash Wayne Jacobson slash 22 to get all the links to everything mentioned in today's show. 
And thank you so much for listening. And thank you for subscribing to Theology.fm. I hope that you found this discussion encouraging, helpful, and insightful as you seek to make your life and theology look more and more like Jesus Christ.